Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello there, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Today's live podcast recording is coming to you on World Suicide Prevention Day, September the 10th. We're going to be talking today about suicide and the role that essential service firms in financial services, energy, water, telecommunications, debt advice and beyond can realistically play in preventing suicide. We will be talking in detail with our panel about the practical actions firms can take to prevent customer suicide. And while we won't be discussing the actual methods used, if any of this isn't what you need to hear right now, then do feel free to step out now or at any point during the broadcast. Now, it used to be thought that disclosures of suicidal intent and essential services were rare or once in a blue moon customer events. However, this isn't really the case. Many people working in frontline and specialist uh, services report encountering customers who they're concerned might be considering taking their own life. And this is particularly a case where financial difficulty is involved. Evidence now also exists to quantify this. A recent study of nearly 1,600 debt collection staff found that in the last 12 months alone, one in four frontline staff reported speaking to at least one customer they seriously believed might go on to kill themselves. And this is all set against the backdrop where every year over 6,000 people in the UK and Republic of Ireland intentionally take their own lives and where 1 in 20 adults report thinking about taking their own life. Clearly, the organisations we work in are not part of the NHS or listening or counselling services, but it would seem they are on the front line when it comes to suicide prevention. So this raises the questions. What can we realistically do to prevent lives from being lost from suicide? And where does the responsibility of our organisations and staff begin and end? To help us consider this, we're joined by Gareth McNabb. Good morning, Gareth. Morning, Chris. Morning, everyone. Gareth is a survivor of suicide, and until stepping recently into a new role, he was Money Advice Liaison Manager at Nationwide. We had much involvement in Nationwide's work around customer vulnerability. We're also joined by Nick Barnes. Good morning, Nick. Good morning to everyone. Nick is CEO of Suicide First Aid. Uh, Nick's trained over 10,000 people in suicide prevention and has just launched Suicide First Aid for Essential Services, covering financial services, energy, water, telecommunications and beyond, which was developed in partnership with the Money Advice Trust. And we're joined by Neil Taylor. Good morning, Neil. Morning, Chris. Morning, everyone. Neil is Industry Liaison Manager at NatWest and has helped develop and deliver a number of uh, vulnerability programs for the group. This includes the Suicide First Aid course for Essential Services, uh, which NatWest are currently supporting staff to undertake. And we're also joined by all of you. Thanks very much for joining us today. Um, there's a chat or a question uh, button on your screen. Do get your views, your questions, your thoughts, uh, your comments in as early as possible, and our panel will take as many as we can. Okay, I wanted to start um, by uh, talking with you, Gareth, a little bit about your experience of suicidal thoughts, uh, why it's so important to you that suicide prevention is considered part of a firm's response to vulnerability. So can you tell us a bit about your, your experience? Uh, my experience with uh, suicide uh, is uh, probably common to more people than any of us realise. Um, before I experienced my own suicidal thoughts and 
uh, tried to take my own life some 20 years ago. Um, I, I'd lost a family member to suicide, um, and uh, and a close uh, family member had uh, had uh, tried to take their life too. And so um, I was aware that it was a real thing. I was aware it wasn't a distant thing, but it was still a, quite a surprise to me when uh, I started to have suicidal thoughts towards the first end, the, the end of my first year in university, um, and um, and then the the impact on me when those thoughts uh, manifested in, in me trying to take my own life. Um, I um, things were piling up for me. I had a, a messy relationship breakup. Um, uh, I uh, was uh, financially really struggling. Um, I was at the top of my overdraft, and I owed my whole year's first uh, rent to the university. Um, I uh, hadn't passed my first year, and I uh, was worried about moving back home. And so was seriously considering whether I should declare myself homeless. And so th things had piled up quite a lot. Um, and I was feeling pretty alone and at the end of myself. There was a financial difficulty element in there, as, as you pointed out. But there were many factors coming together at once, which, which, which led to you being in that situation. Yes. Yeah, there really were. I think money was not particularly on my mind. Uh, first year university, here's your loan check, here's your overdraft, and here's your nearest pub, I think was pretty much how I approached my, my first year. Um, uh, but it, it was probably, it was probably the relationship breakdown that was the, the first, uh, domino, um, followed by the, the challenges to my own performance at university, um, uh, and then realizing that I owed quite as much money as I did, uh, on, uh, on my rent, um, at, that I felt I cannot handle any of these individual things on their own as together they are insurmountable. And one of the themes of World Suicide Prevention Today, uh, day to day, has been about stepping closer to people who have suicidal thoughts or are planning to take their own life. And in, in, in your work on, on vulnerability, both in the past and also kind of uh, what you might be involved in at the moment, uh, how, how does suicide uh, prevention fit into that overall picture of a vulnerability activity so from my own personal point of view i think the the realization that i've had even only really recently so i'm talking about something that was 20 years ago um but for my experience is that once uh once i've opened the door to actually attempting to take my own life um some of those things that came together as a trigger back then that in many people's lives suicide wouldn't be an option it's not really one of the ways that you would choose to deal with a housing challenge necessarily. But for me, having been there uh, once, it, it remains a legitimate option when dealing with a difficult circumstance that I need to consciously strike off the list each time I'm dealing with a challenge. Even in the last uh, 12 months, um, I, I've faced some uh, challenges in the workplace. I've faced some, faced some challenges in family life that I've needed to consciously remove suicide as an option. Um, and so just that load that I, I, is alive to me and I, I anticipate is alive to anybody who's been to that place means that our vulnerability strategies and, uh, and corporate policies and all these kind of things just need to be alive to the human impact of, mm. of life circumstances, really. Um, mm. uh, that's a little bit vague and woolly. We're going to spend the next hour getting into more of the detail there, I'm, I'm sure. That's my, my number one reflection would be. Realizing that a suicide survivor needs to actively strike suicide off of their list of options on how to deal with a given situation. Mm. Um, and just the load that that involves uh, is quite real for me, uh, even right now. 
Yeah, and it, it's suicide is mentioned in the uh, Financial Conduct Authority's recent paper uh, draft still, but soon to be final on 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 vulnerability. So Nick Nick Barnes listening in there. Um, I just want to start with a really practical question, and it is, what do you say to someone, someone that you've never met, you're a member of staff, you're talking to a customer on the phone, what do you say when they tell you that they're thinking of suicide? If someone's thinking of suicide, then they're still alive for a good reason, um, and that's the living part inside them that's trying to get help. So um, calling a agent uh, uh, in a provider and and letting that agent know directly, as you've said, if you just say, came out and said, I'm, I'm thinking of killing myself, um, well, I need to be able to be present to meet whatever needs that person has. So what would I say? I might clarify to start with, or am, I, am I just, are you telling me you're thinking of suicide? Do you know, but once that's clarified, and I'm sure this is, this is this is real, then the need that person has is to be understood. To, someone needs to understand how they feel and what that means. So listening, you know, comes next. We're all trained many different roles across many sectors in, in listening skills. Well, there has never been a more important time in your life, professionally or personally, if it's a personal conversation, to, to just listen, I've got to close my mouth and, and, and understand what it is that's driving the pain that's leading to suicide thinking, um, and, and what that means for the person. So there's a, there's a process of brief intervention, uh, that has been devised and used for years and years and years with many different subjects, with all difficult subjects require care and understanding and training really helps knowing that you know how to respond when someone makes a disclosure a direct disclosure like that or a more coded disclosure so it might not be so direct as to say i'm i'm, I'm thinking of killing myself it might be i this is the last time i'm calling you just to let you know uh, or doesn't matter what you call me today i don't care because it's not like we'll ever be ever talking again. Um, coded disclosures, do you know, clarification, are you? I'm wondering sometimes when people call and they say what you've just said is because they're thinking of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide today? But this, the tonality and the softness and the timing, the clarification question, how you ask that question is key. Um, seek first to uh, to understand before we uh, we attempt to be understood ourselves. And you know, making that connection, stepping forward. The course that that you, that you, you you've launched for the Money Advice Trust uh, around suicide first aid. Um, wh why do we need uh, a, another course on suicide prevention? What what's brought this one about? Makes it um, stand out. Well, we've worked together for a number of years to understand the challenges faced by essential services in working with people who are in so much pain that suicide has become an option. Um, just as Gareth said, suicide is an option and I can't wrestle with you and pull suicide away. Uh, it's not something I, I can't be telling someone you can't suicide, that would be and make judgments. 
actually suicide's an option for every single one of us every day of our lives. Uh, it's an option that most of us would never consider. On a good day, most of us get on and, and, and just meet our needs. It's all about what that person needs at the point they're thinking of suicide and safety uh, is, is, is the target. So, so why do we need this? Another course on suicide is a qualification program and it's actually the only program of its type in the world where you have externally, you're externally moderated by City uh, and Guilds International, City and Guilds Institutes in the UK. It's a form of tested learning. And you, you'll be assessed by written assignments. If you choose to, you can qualify in suicide prevention. Mm. Now that's, that's a rosette. That's recognition that for an awful lot of people in roles these days, particularly in the current times, is hugely valuable. We need it because it's great to know that you know how to have a conversation that may save a life. There's a mantra there. Actually, learn how to have a conversation that could save a life really nails what this is all about. Mm. Uh, people, people in frontline services, customer-facing staff, agents can save lives, and it might be within 10 minutes of starting a call with a stranger mm. that, that you just thought was coming like every other customer for a general inquiry or, or of some, for something really quite random. Mm-hmm. Um, it could well be that they're coming because they're trying desperately to stay alive. Uh, and you're the person that's got that opportunity to affect that, to support them, mm-hmm. to, to understand suicide isn't the only option. And actually, if we could just press pause on that decision between living and dying, um, I could help you right now talk about ways to help you stay safe. Mm. Um, and there's safety. We introduce it again. So, so Neil Taylor listening in there. Um, at the moment, uh, NatWest staff are going through the suicide first aid course. And I think one of the challenges and one of the reasons um, so Nick and the Money Vice Trust have been working together on this is to try to bring together that guidance around making that connection and keeping the person safe while recognizing the context in which staff are actually working and what they, what their, their role demands of them. So Nick, just to pick up on how we blend together and that Gareth do come in as well, how we blend together the practical context in which people are working and the demands on them along with keeping people safe. Uh, you know, what, what is, what is realistic? How, how, how can we, how can we achieve this? The, the simplicity of intervention with anyone, uh, we're talking about potential customers in a, a relationship with a provider. Um, but it could be just, it could just be someone you've never met before that ends up sitting next to you on, on a park bench by a pond, for example. The, the simple process of being present and connecting with that person is, is the, the action that creates the conditions for change. And we talk about this on the program. I said within 10 minutes, um, as an example, actually within 10 minutes, it's completely possible to have got to a point through just listening and understanding that the person feels connected, possibly for the first time in a very long time to another 
human being. And it's that lack of connection that can be a driver that for, for feeling alone and the feeling of aloneness, having lost who you are and lost connections with other people, um, is one of the, the drivers again for, for pain. So, so that would be my, my initial thought, Chris. Suicide isn't a new issue for customer facing staff. It's a, it's a situation a lot of staff do fear encountering. I wondered why, why is that from a staff perspective? And maybe you could tell us a bit about the support that NatWest uh, are giving to colleagues around suicide prevention. It's a really difficult one. And, you know, a lot of it is the fear of getting the response wrong or not knowing what to say. You know, I think that, that awkwardness around probably feeling a little bit of responsibility for the person you take talking to on the call and whether you're able to resolve everything. Um, but it's definitely a difficult conversation. Um, and it's probably one we often want to avoid, you know, thoughts as deep as that. It's not something we often openly disclose to people and certainly people you don't know. Mm. I think to me, a lot of it is that, you know, the stigma, it's taken the stigma away. You know, I think it's great, you know, that Gareth can come onto a, you know, a webinar like this and actually talk about it. I think that is key to getting over that stigma, you know, making it easier for colleagues and, and customers to talk about it. I think that's a start point. Mm, no, absolutely. What's been, um, what's been the most valuable practical skill that you, you, you've taken away from the work that you've done with Nick? So first of all, I would say, I think everybody listening on this call will, will understand from Nick's tone how he, how he talks, how he helps deliver is fantastic. You know, and that really is valuable. In, in terms of the messages, uh, there's probably a few actually, but I mean, probably trying to get it down to, to one or two. I think one is already, you know, we've already talked about it today is, is actually asking the direct question, you know, of the person you're speaking to, you know, are you thinking of a suicide today? Have you got suicidal thoughts? That, that, that is definitely one key. And I suppose the second part to that I've taken away from the training is don't be scared or ashamed to ask that question. I think starting by that point and maybe understanding or trying to understand, you know, the person you're speaking to, their, their, their position, then allows you to go into the next bit. What Nick was saying is, is, is that listening? There's no more important time to listen to the customer, but actually let's start it by trying to establish. And it might be that that doesn't, is it the first thing you would say in a call? I'm sure it will be, but at the point, maybe there's either the customer said something to you. Or you see the red flags on the call mm. you're taking, then that's a time to maybe ask and then to start listening. Let's we're getting quite a few questions coming in here, so uh, they they uh they can be clustered together under the theme of uh the challenges of uh doing the job and the challenges of keeping the customer safe, and we want to bring those uh as close together as possible. So there's a question here from Daniel, and maybe Gareth, I can go to you first, and then to um, then to Nick, and then to Neil. Daniel was saying this, this is really important, clearly. Uh, and things like stigma and listening. These are really great high level. Okay. These are things we need to tackle. But what if in reality we can't meet that person's needs at the point of a disclosure? If somebody is saying, look, I'm thinking of suicide. These are the reasons. What, what do we do then? Gareth, uh, Nick, what, what, how do, how do we meet needs that? That perhaps are not commercially realistic. Um, I'm sure Nick will have more helpful um, suggestions, and the training would have an awful lot more on this. But um, I'm as 
as Neil was talking and as that question comes up, I'm reflecting on um, the first time that I would have been close to disclosing that I'm, I'm, I'm only on in remembering it. I remember that if I'd been asked the question then, I'd have been able to say, well, actually, now you may come to mention it. Yes. Um, and uh, I was uh, meeting with uh, university staff uh, to talk about my uh, rent demand and my failing grades. And I was explaining to them the reasons that I thought that those things were happening. Some of the, the things that I was uh, panicking about and that were on my mind, they had some practical things that they could do. Um, they couldn't um, fix my relationship difficulties. They couldn't uh, find me somewhere to live uh, back with, uh, where my parents are. Um, but there were a couple of things they could do. And so my reflection would be there's rarely not nothing that you can do. And don't um, think too lightly of the importance of just listening. Because had I been asked this question then, I would hope that I'd have been able to explain just how desperate I was feeling and how without options I felt. I didn't know mm. the choices I had about dealing with my housing or my debt um, or even um, uh, counselling for my relationship difficulties or uh, medical support for what was becoming a clear mental health issue. Um, and so the university couldn't do everything, but they could have done something. They could have done more than I feel like. I feel like they could have done more than they did. Um, but this is 20 years ago. The world has changed a lot since then. Mm. It's, it's Nick. What, what do we do when there is a disclosure, but a disclosure is linked to a need that a, far, a firm can't meet? How do we handle those? Well, I, I, I think we all have needs and social welfare needs. So having somewhere to live, being able to put food on your table and eat, being able to clothe yourself adequately. Uh, a basic needs all of us have that we just get out of bed in the mornings and they're met normally. Uh, the drivers for pain, if you, a very basic level, and this is before I in, you, you introduce other factors, um, gambling, uh, redundancy, particularly at the moment, uh, unemployment, factors that threaten those basic needs are very often, there'll be more than one. Um, but these are the drivers for suicide thinking. So they're the drivers for pain, variable emotional pain and physical pain. It could be that you, you are, you're, you're going through a particularly difficult period of illness that the service provider knows nothing about. It might be we're not able to do anything about that because we're not clinicians. Mm. Um, don't need to be a clinician to be able to start a conversation about a subject that we have been conditioned all our lives never to talk about. So, so this is where upskilling through a specific program focusing on that subject that we've been trained, that we've been taught and conditioned all our lives never to talk about will meet some of that person's needs. Now it might be, uh, in a recoveries context, if someone's in so much problem debt, uh, the home is looking particularly like it may well not be able to be retained. Gareth just said this, this, there's always something we can do. Uh, and actually, even if we were just to press pause on that process right now, because the, the question this has to get back to 
is what is more important than life and death? And, and if we talk about process-driven suicides, and in the academic environment, as we've heard, there's a process there that has to be followed, but that process drives pain, and for many that pain's unbearable. Uh, we've talked a lot in recent years about student suicide, um, the pressures of academic life. Well, it's just the same with your home, a basic need. Uh, and, and the reality is I'm, I might not be able to live here anymore. And I cannot imagine life without my neighbours, without my dignity, um, without the status of being a homeowner, etc., etc. Well, you know, these aren't questions that necessarily we need to answer in on this call and i will always have the power on a call to press pause on a process mm. and, and, and the, the zero suicide aspiration that was introduced a few years ago across healthcare systems no one that has contact with a healthcare system that uses a zero suicide uh, aspiration will die by suicide. That is that is their mantra, that's their aspiration. We might consider that's unreasonable, but actually an attitude change can create different conditions for a connection between two people. So rather than actually getting into a, well, we can and we're going to, or there's nothing we can do, so therefore this is happening, type exchange, I could just press a button right now and press pause on that because that's a conversation we don't need to discuss right this minute because right mm. this minute you're telling me you're thinking of suicide. So that is the most important thing for us to talk about right now. So tell me how you feel mm. and what that means and, and, and work through a brief intervention model. Okay. Um, people's basic needs really aren't that hard to meet. And there's always things we can do as providers to be able to assist. I think there's a second part to Daniel's question, which I'll come to in a moment. Surely, mm. and this is all under the heading of kind of how do we deal with this in the setting? So a real life setting with real customers, real staff. And one of the things uh, we hear from firms, and this is uh, Shirley's point, is that sometimes customers will say things in the heat of the moment, things that aren't true about intention or about thought how do we deal with these situations um are, you know is there such a thing as such a, a genuine suicide disclosure and a, a non-genuine do we take every disclosure seriously how do we handle this in the moment can i come to you first nick if someone says something that suggests to me they're vulnerable to suicide and that that's something they've been thinking about it's a very big call uh to call that out uh, around whether I believe you or not, uh, or if the, if that is just a turn of phrase and, and you're just saying that. Actually, the next step is listening and understanding, and and just moving to the st the second step of of the the model that teaches agents to really just slow down, close your mouth at this point, and open your ears, listen to what this person's saying to you. So explore the disclosures. The, the throwaway remark, if that's what it is, to explore that. So what's got you into so much pain that that's where you're at today? Through the process of understanding someone else, the connection between you and someone else will become so deep. When you're able to reflect back meaning 
that you've heard from a conversation, from, from, from a person's story, the meaning, the feelings, the attached, the feelings that are attached to that meaning. And that person says, yeah, that's exactly how it is. When they, when, when you seek that clarification, there's a bond, there's a connection between all of us. Uh, And this brief intervention model will work with other types of disclosure. So, I seek first to understand and then be understood. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi gave us that a long, long time ago. I would challenge you to do that the next time you're in a retail store arguing over the return of a garment that uh, lost a button the first time you wore it. Um, if you can work that process in any type of interaction, you will find it will create a connection between you and the person you're talking to. Now, if someone is just, it's a turn of phrase, it's something I say because I know I get attention. Well, you know, I'm all right with that because I'll go back to clarify the suicide question. I'll go back to to clarify what exactly they meant when they said that at the start of the conversation. It might be that the connection that's been created between yourself and the stranger, customer potentially, is so deep at that point the customer is able then to clarify with you, well, actually, do you know what? I did say that, and it's just something I say. Um, and normally, you know, it means people listen, and you've done, done exactly that. So creating the conditions for change happens through listening and understanding, but also creating the conditions for honesty. Mm. Uh, and people that sometimes say things, say them because uh, it has an impact. Mm-hmm. And it means people listen. And when we play that back and mirror that back to the uh, the customer, uh, if it is a heat of the moment comment, they may well uh, clarify uh, their yeah. intent. We often hear that from firms. Neil and Gareth, there's going to be situations where the, the objective is to keep the customer safe. Um, can you give us some examples, uh, perhaps starting with Neil, of the difference that firms can make, you know, what in terms of outcomes and keeping people from suicide? Certainly one, I mean, what Nick said is, is definitely what, you know, came across in the training in terms of don't be scared to ask the question and, you know, and what they mean by such thoughts, which gives you then the chance to listen. And we actually had a great example on, on the actual day when we'd done some of the training in the morning. One of the, my colleagues who attended the training and, and I've had the sort of recording played back to me since where it really helped by Asking those questions, it really helped build the empathy with the, the, empathy with the customer. Um, the, the one phrase what Nick used then was that pause, you know, pause those thoughts. And that was the actual technique which that colleague used, which had been trained in the morning. So it was brilliant to hear a situation where someone came onto a call. Um, you know, at the start of the call, you could really tell they were distressed and in a difficult position. Um, but the, you know, the, the colleague I'm talking about had very good skills already, you know, in terms of the, the ability to listen and question, but rightly question just at the point to get, you know, their thoughts. But mm. then to use the technique what Nick had used in the training about pausing those thoughts, it worked perfectly. And, and mm. actually, it was a really, really good call to listen to. And, and one what <clears throat> makes you realize how much taking the stigma away, having these conversations, giving them the techniques, to learn from can help. So probably finishing off, Chris, what, what you talked about, you know, we, we can have policies and processes in place which do help, 
but actually giving our colleagues the skill and the confidence to be able to deal with these difficult situations is key. Mm, absolutely. Gareth, you heard, heard there kind of building on the skills that colleagues already have um, and um, giving them extra tools in the toolbox. What, what outcomes and examples um, stick in your mind in terms of uh, preventing suicide? I've worked in financial services um, longer than I can remember um, and had to listen to calls uh, throughout all, all that time. I can remember listening to a call what, uh, 12, 13 years ago in a collections environment uh, when I was uh, working for a different employer and really struck. I was brand new to the world of collections and recoveries. I was um, feeling okay about it, but not too sure about the steps that you have to take when you uh, doing things like repossessing properties. I mean, that's a pretty high stress kind of situation for a colleague and particularly a customer uh, to be in. I remember listening to a colleague who had received a disclosure, um, had uh, asked, uh, are you telling me that you're thinking of suicide today? Um, so quite prescient way of asking the question. And, uh, and this person said yes and disclosed that they were in the middle of the process disclosed their means and the opportunity they were taking. And uh, the instincts of this colleague were great. They kept them on the line. They um, called uh, me over as their supervisor, wrote down on a pad what was going on. A lot of the things that have come up in uh, in, in training and support that, that you and others have produced over recent years. Uh, and together we were able to keep the customer on the phone, identify that they lived in sheltered accommodation with a warden. Um, another colleague was able to contact that warden. Um, and um, this is before we began to realise that the emergency services exist for a reason. Um, uh, and so uh, we didn't contact them, but we did contact the warden. That individual was uh, kept safe while they were on the phone and then kept safe uh, as they, they they followed through some of the process. And, and uh, they, they lived and uh, we supported them through the financial difficulty afterwards. Um, now, this was a colleague who had great instincts, good customer service and knew that they had a manager who wanted to support them. Um, and my feeling is that um, training is important, new tools are helpful, but essentially if we're recruiting for customer service skills right across essential services, and uh, managers and leaders are providing real support to the frontline people and aren't just ticking boxes for compliance, then I think we have the raw materials to save a lot of lives. This is the key thing. So it's, it's recruiting the right staff, providing them with the, the right uh, skills training uh, and giving them the right tools. There's an additional thing there as well, though, um, Gareth, Nick and uh, Neil. And that's this isn't just about um, audio. This is about um, other channels. And Shirley and Peter uh, in the uh, in the questions raised the point that how do we do this across other channels? Digital. How do we listen? When it's a live chat, I put listening quotes there. What do we do if people are not willing to pick up the phone? Nick, is, is the training that you give, is it applicable across all channels? And or how do we, how do we tailor that? This is a great question. The, the, the process that we teach in, in the, the large part of the afternoon's course, if we can understand what suicide is and what drives suicide, where do suicide thoughts come from, then we can begin to understand how we can prevent it. So the afternoon of our program is spent looking at brief intervention. And that's about an individual working with another individual in whatever relationship they may have or, or may not have. The relationship might be their strangers. 
if this is on a channel that's I, I, a pop-up chat's come up on my banking app and I'm by random an accident I'm chatting to an agent the process of intervention is exactly the same regardless of whether you're working on a chat uh, a telephone uh, a zoom call uh, a face-to-face or not because I can listen and I can read um, and I can clearly if there's two people sitting face to face the 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 communication channels at its best where there's only one sense working which is reading and listening and understanding um, it's it's I have to listen even harder if it's just my ears I'm using. But actually sitting through uh, on, a, on a chat, and, and we have trained over the years many, many different organizations and services. You could be standing somewhere on a bridge and, you know, the person intervening would be a trained negotiator with the local police. Uh, they will use exactly the same brief intervention model as we would, we would be teaching people to use if you were sitting in a call center, if, if you were sitting at home, uh, if you're a relationship manager looking at a customer through a Zoom call uh, or working on a chat window, you're typing. Um, they're typing. So I'm just mindful this is quite a, a difficult task, actually typing out why. Well, okay, because this, 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 and this, tap, tap, tap. Uh, I will work to exactly the same model regardless of the medium with which I'm privileged enough to have this opportunity to be able to help someone stay safe. Mm. And, and of course, safety, that is the goal because safety saves lives. There's a, there's a question here from uh, Nicholas and um, it's around, we have to make cases to our businesses to uh, develop policies, put programs into place, undertake training uh, and, and act on problems. And one of the maybe dilemmas or uh, decisions that need to be made is how far does a firm go? And Nicholas says, should firms be focusing on attempting to handle these conversations in-house or is signposting to suitable charities more effective as well as being more viable for firms? Great question. Who wants to take that one? Uh, I'm happy to take that, Chris. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the things we always say to our colleagues and, you know, who come across difficult situations is, we aren't trained clinicians. I know we said that earlier, you know, that isn't our role, but our role, you know, I suppose as a bank and the purpose of the bank is to help customers in their time of need. And, and what I would say by that, you know, I think we've touched on earlier that there can be various different ways you can provide that support and help. And actually, it, you know, signposting might be the right and appropriate treatment or option for that person at that time. You know, listening, I think we've talked around, you know, that there are, there is a role for, you know, our colleagues to play in that and listening might be the key, but it actually might be signposting. I think that is something a trained and a skilled, you know, workforce will pick up on when they're speaking to the customer and, and you'll make those decisions based on the conversation you're having. Mm. Um, you know, but I certainly, the one thing we've said always to our colleagues is, you know, they aren't trained clinicians, you know, they're not going to have the skill sets to deal at depth, but actually it's amazing what they will be able to do to help that person. So one thing that um, I've uh, often presented both in back office and compliance functions and so on is, um, and I recognise that this may not be true in all of the audience for today, but 
we often use the language of responsibility, um, but I prefer to use the language of opportunity. And so just to burst the bubble for frontline people who might be worried about what, what responsibilities do I have? To Neil's point, we're not clinicians. We're not trying to be mental health counselors. And um, we're trying to make sure you have the tools so that if the opportunity, if you have the opportunity to save a life, then you can, because I, I don't know that I, I, I don't know how I feel walking around every day feeling like I have the responsibility to do so. Um, but knowing I have the opportunity to do so and, and the tools to be able to be useful in that situation, helpful in that situation, I think is really meaningful. When it comes to signposting, um, again, the, the challenge that I've given uh, all kinds of businesses and organisations is there's more to signposting than putting some names of organisations on a list and sticking it next to your screen. There's mm. some skill involved in understanding how to surface the real underlying how to introduce the idea that I might not be best placed to help you, but somebody else might be better placed, and then to select the right kind of organisation and, and introduce them in the right kind of way, in such a way that the individual will act on that signposting. Because saying the name of a charity and reciting a phone number down the line might make you feel like you've done your bit, but frankly that can sometimes be you followed a process. Um, but the points that Nick's been making about um, pausing the conversation and pausing the process that you're responsible for so that you can take the opportunity to explore it a little bit further. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely vital. So I mm. don't think we have a responsibility, but we definitely have an opportunity. Um, and there's more to signposting than names and numbers on a list. Um, mm. Nick, an, an, another, um, point, uh, or challenge for firms to take this on is they may feel comfortable in uh, the notion that they will handle a disclosure when it's made. But it's another thing to directly ask a customer when you're concerned that they're thinking about suicide. How, how, do, we, how do we reassure people, uh, uh, firms, about the practicality of doing this? Because they're going to be worried about false positives, customer offence, uh, people asking the, the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong way. How, how do we deal with that practically? Well, it isn't part of a screening process within the first 30 seconds of, of taking a call when you call your bank to, to ask one of the questions being, are you thinking of suicide? It's not like we're, we're just randomly asking people. We're, we're asking people uh, a direct and clear question in, in a very sensitive way because there's something within the call. I've heard something. There's something you've said. There's something you've told me that means, do you know, I need to ask you because very often when people are X, Y, and Z, they think of suicide. I'm wondering, are you thinking of suicide? I'm going to qualify why I'm asking this question. And likely with the right skills being used, that will result in the conditions for change. And, and the change, the, the, we'll press pause on this today. Let's focus on, on how to keep you safe. Well, that's a fantastic change for someone at the start of a call was probably isolated, feeling alone and in overwhelming, unbearable pain. If we don't ask uh, because they haven't made an overt disclosure, but spotting the signs after, you know, after a call, when you listen back on a call and you hear that, that there are clear signs coded because... This is a diffi people can't, most people can't just say 
But if they do say, of course, I've got to clarify and continue the intervention. And um, if they don't say, but there's the signs there as a, as a trained suicide first aider who's qualified in suicide prevention, because that's something that we did last year, for example, uh, I won't be able to ignore what I've heard or sensed within a call. Actually, the cost of ignoring a coded disclosure of suicide um, could be much, much greater for the person that's handling that call because they'll be left wondering, I didn't ask about the call, do you know, I wish I had, and I just hope that person's safe. There's nothing worse in a professional life or a personal life to have had contact with someone that's died mm. in the period before their death and to realize, and, and it can take, in personal relationships, this can take 20 years before you might actually, your brain allows you to realize, I could have helped that person the day before they died. I spoke to them and, and they did say things in that conversation that caused me concern. Mm. And brief intervention with suicide isn't that hard. And I, I've done training with uh, clinicians. Uh, actually, the most recent one was last year when we were in the Middle East. And the head of their emergency treatment department at one of the large hospitals that commissioned the training said halfway through the training, you know, this just reminds me, 90% of the time, she said, people that come that are sent to emergency services that the police are called to didn't need to come to emergency services. They didn't need the police called. They just needed a human being to stop and listen and understand at that point in that call what it was they were going through. And, and, and she nailed it for me because I absolutely embraced that. Actually, this isn't about clinical risk assessment. This isn't therapy. It's just about being human mm. and being present for another person and allowing that person the space to, to, to express themselves and someone to listen and understand. Um, so to firms that say, well, this isn't our job or to know we, we might be getting, I don't apologize for suicide. I'm not sorry to ask you this. We have a culture at this firm where our customers come first. And, and if a customer's thinking of suicide, if, if we're part of that, we need to know about that. So, so there will be things we can do to sprinkle water on some of the heat of the pain you're feeling today. That's the pressing pause in the process. Uh, it doesn't have to be the domain of specialist teams. It could be the very first person that handles yeah. that call right at the very beginning mm. who spends 10 minutes uh, uh, and, and, and changes the whole day for that customer. It might be it's the beginning of something hugely, hugely mm. different. I'd say it's quite important that it's not only specialist teams. Um, so if, if we know that 50% of people in problem debt also have some kind of mental health difficulty, then we know that the entire front line of collections and recoveries functions, for example, or debt advice agencies would do well to have an understanding of how to pause their processes and acknowledge the human that's just disclosed some pain to them. Um, and as you say, 
the experience of being the experience of being seen and heard um, actually can help crystallise some thoughts and help an individual themselves realise that this is a suicidal thought, but it's also one that I can I'm going to choose now not to act upon. Mm. Um, it's certainly been my experience. I've been through that cycle a couple of times, um, and uh, I think that's that's not something that any of us need to look at our specialist teams and say that's clearly such a specialist skill we must only put it there. I think mm. it's a human skill that um, each of us has the ability to learn, and numbers of us will probably have some kind of innate awareness of some of these uh, techniques anyway. I'm just going to come in here with a couple of um, couple of points on the human element, but from the staff side. So, uh, Tori uh, and also uh, Chris um, are talking about the support for staff. Tori draws attention to where uh, something happens on a call which goes beyond us uh, listening. We might be trying to keep the customer talking, but the customer uh, takes some form of action. And Chris um, flags up uh, that at the current current time, actually getting a kind of a second pair of ears on a call or perhaps even on a, a live uh, chat is really difficult. And sometimes staff are uh, very much alone because they're working from home. They're working under a very different environment. You can't put your hand in the air and wave it and say, uh, I'm taking a difficult call here. So Gareth and Neil, it's these, these operational changes and keeping staff um, safe. What, what, what do we need to be doing here? Thanks, Chris. Yeah, um, it is difficult. You know, we, we've, had, we've all had to adjust our, probably our working ways over the last six months. Um, you know, we, we do have tools at NatWest where, you know, you can message colleagues. I think a lot still, and what's not changed, is making the the opportunity for staff to talk about their feelings to pick up the conversation you know whether that's with your line manager or your your colleagues or your peers you know you know in what we do encourage and we do is have supportive teams you know do talk about the day do talk about the difficult conversations you've had you know we, we do realize you know that dealing with customers in financial hardship and dealing with difficult conversations you know <clears throat> it is Something what on a daily basis, you know, our colleagues will have challenging and, and difficult calls. Um, so we've had to adjust, you know, using, you know, we, we have like a messaging system. We use Zoom. We do have calls. We do use those sort of features to speak to colleagues and, and, and give them the opportunity to download. Um, but I agree, you know, the new working way. We've got to look at it and think differently than maybe we did before where it's probably easier when you sat next to that person and you can see that they're having that call. I think in the early stages of the COVID crisis, your firm or uh, advice agency or whatever um, saw success as being how do we still take meet call volumes while people are working from home? Then that's understandable, but isn't enough um, until we've managed to work out how to work as distributed workforces um, who are able to bring our whole selves to work and so have roots to be able to talk about things that are impacting us, things that are on our minds, um, and uh, that we're able to ensure full support for customers in vulnerable circumstances. And I don't just mean uh, processes being followed, but those staff who experience those kind of disclosures being able to get the support they need. Then we haven't finished the job. Um, and any organisation that's thinking, hey, we've made some cost savings or we've seen some uh, efficiencies, we've seen uh, improvements in uh, um, productivity through distributing our workforce. If your people aren't feeling like they can bring their whole self to work, 
and your um, particularly your vulnerable customer processes aren't are missing any element of support to the frontline colleague, then you definitely haven't finished mm. the process. Mm. Rachel, uh, reflecting here in the in the questions about yeah, it is incredibly difficult uh, and challenging for staff to take some of these calls and keeping their well-being in mind is is hugely important. I'm going to try and ask some a, a, a few quick questions uh, to get us through. So Nick, I'm going to come to you um, first, and I'm going to try and frame this this question very carefully. And it goes back to something that Daniel mentioned kind of earlier on in the questions. It was firms sometimes say they encounter customers who use suicide as a way to delay action, such as a, a repossession. Uh, yeah. where situation has gone on for a long time. Your background's in housing, Nick, so you'd have encountered these these types of situations or to turn a situation to their favour by mentioning mm. suicide. What do we what do we do about these longer term conversations about suicide? And so they're not one off disclosures, keeping people safe, but they're longer. They go on for a period. That's a great question and it's one that comes up time and time again, particularly where we have customer facing rules where our role is to take action that is unavoidably causing pain, so is part of this customer's process. The Canadians I learned years ago at a program I went, Suicide and Manipulation. It was a program that was written in Canada by a colleague of mine called Jerry Dooley. And I will just say that because I'm going to use some of the learning that he gave me. Suicide and Manipulation, the dilemma um, really nails what we're talking about. I went on a one-day program to, to, to think. People that use suicide in a way to obtain secondary gain, uh, and the secondary gain of me saying this in this conversation might be that I know your process means you press pause on your recovery process or you press pause on the eviction that you've got set for three weeks away. Okay, do you know what? I can press pause on the eviction. It's set for three weeks away. Um, and we can press unpause again in the future. It's, that's not such a big issue. It's understanding for, for, for agents and, and for us as working with our families and friends and strangers that we meet in everyday life. Why do people sometimes do this? Um, I can't, if I was losing my home and, uh, it was imminent and I knew uh, I introduced this into a conversation, it would have that effect. I can't blame someone or judge someone for doing that. Um, but what Jerry Dooley taught in his program, and this is very helpful to write down, the acronym HART, H-A-R-T, sets out the common values that are weaker in people that use suicide to manipulate. And this was after years and years of research working with people in mental health services uh, in, in Newfoundland, uh, in, in uh, eastern Canada, they discovered through analysing many, many cases that there were values that were weaker in people that used suicide this way. Honesty, acceptance, respect and trust. So the honesty of what you're saying, I can acknowledge I'm being a bit doubtful about you sound like you're really struggling to accept the fact you might be losing your home. I don't feel respected when someone does that to me and there's a lack of trust between myself and that person. So there's four areas that we can use to understand why someone does a behavior like that that allows us to adjust our response, our performance. It's about understanding why people do it. And, and the HEART acronym it was hugely valuable then 
in my own role in, in frontline uh, legal advice for people that were that were being made homeless. Nick, thank you very, very, very much. We've got so many questions that we could um, cover, but sadly, we've reached the end. I want to thank uh, Nick, Gareth and Neil and for everyone who contributed today and listening. If you want to find out more about Suicide First Aid course and our work, go to moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. If you've been affected by any of the issues we discussed, you can, of course, call the Samaritans 116123 or find other forms of help at nhs.uk slash conditions slash suicide. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for joining today. Uh, stay safe, keep one another safe, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.